this is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. Education. Almost everyone says that it's important and we all want what's best for children. But when it comes to supporting K-12 students learning and to fully funding educational facilities, to finding restorative ways to resolve conflict, the reality has been very different than those hopes, especially for Black, Indigenous, students of color, and students with disabilities. This is unacceptable. All children should be given environments where they can learn, grow, and thrive. That's why the ACLU of Maryland is in the process of implementing our strategic plan which highlights education as one of our top priorities. We are working with students, parents, community organizations to realize a public education system where all students can learn, thrive, and be prepared to effectively engage in the social, political, and economic life of their communities. Today, we'll speak with key ACLU experts. Justin Nally, Public Policy Analyst, Frank Patanella, Senior Education Advocate, and Tierney Pepra, Staff Attorney, about the work we will be doing to ensure an education system that values and uplifts students' humanity. So, Tierney, Justin, Frank, thank you so much for being on Thinking for Really Today to talk about education with us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to just start off with one general question for, for everybody. Um, you know, many people have heard, you know, of course, that education is important, but from a constitutional perspective, what makes education in Maryland unique? I think one thing that makes it unique is um, there is a provision in the Maryland Constitution that all students are afforded uh, the right to an adequate education and that in itself i think is something that can potentially mean an equitable situation for many students um as i'm sure we're getting today that's not the reality but that's certainly a standard that we can utilize for uh, the type of education system that we want to see happen and actually um you know i want to dig in a little bit deeper into this and help us understand, you know, really how education and the rights of education in Maryland has evolved over time. So Frank, can you talk to us about the Bradford lawsuit, you know, kind of what is it and what have the impacts of it been? Um, sure. Uh, interestingly, it was the lowest wealth school systems in Maryland that went to court first in 1979 under Somerset County versus Hornbeck. Uh, this lawsuit contended that Maryland's funding system was unconstitutional and sought additional funding for Somerset and other low wealth districts, including Baltimore City and Caroline County. They were seeking to get comparable funding to what wealthier counties received. Um, at that time, it was 1983, the court, Maryland Court of Appeals ruled that the state constitution does not guarantee equal funding for each school district, but it left open the question whether the constitution requires that schools be provided adequate funding to ensure that students can receive good education. Um, this led to the ACLU, ACLU of Maryland's lawsuit, Bradford versus the Maryland State Board of Education, first filed in 1994 which contended that Maryland was in violation of its constitutional obligation to fund Baltimore schools adequately. 
Um, the case was filed on behalf of a class of Baltimore City parents, um, citing low test scores, um, lowest gra graduation in the state, and the largest number of at-risk children in the state. Um, Baltimore City Circuit Court Judge Kaplan ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, affirming that the state was constitutionally required to provide the funding necessary for Baltimore students to meet state adopted standards. And at the time, in the year 2000, approximately 270 million in additional funding was needed to meet the constitutional standard. Uh, the state responded by establishing a commission called the Thornton Commission to develop a new state funding formula to ensure that all Maryland school districts received adequate funding. Um, the legislature adopted most of what Thornton proposed into law called the Bridge to Excellence Act of 2002. Uh, that law increased funding statewide by $1.3 billion phased in over a six-year period. So all Maryland school districts received additional funding as a result of the Bradford lawsuit. Um, however, after the phase-in period, the state cut the education funding formula in 2008, which prevented planned increases in school funding in subsequent years. Um, we asked for a report on where Maryland school districts are in terms of meeting the funding adequacy targets set by the Bridge to Excellence Act of 2002. And in 2017, Baltimore City was shown to be about $350 million short of what the state itself deemed to be adequate funding. So you can imagine that's, that's a lot of funding and that figure is um, 1.3 billion statewide. Oh, that's that's um, an incredible amount of money that um, is being owed to students in Baltimore City and, and um, in many ways across the state as well. And actually, uh, Tierney, I wanted to ask you um, in terms of violations to that constitutional um, you know, right to education, what, where in Maryland are we seeing um, the most violations um, when it comes to students' right to education? I think like many states, you're seeing it where Black people tend to live. And we know in the state of Maryland, um, the most, most um, populous area with those demographics obviously would be Baltimore City. And um, also you have other parts of the state like Prince George County that also um, where you really see how the inadequately funded education system results in disparate results for students. And so what you see um, is, a, is a real, is two, two very different education systems. You see one for um, majority white and privileged economic backgrounds versus the one that you see for um, black and brown families. And Unfortunately, what has resulted is a education system that is not only subpar, but children who are being taught inside of buildings um, that many of us would never even dream of walking into, um, being exposed to environmental contaminants while they're trying to get an education, not being given proper services for the different social, um, is social issues that may manifest as a result of their demographics. And so, um, we're seeing it, seeing it play out inside of the communities that are vulnerable throughout the nation, um, but particularly in Maryland, um, we're seeing it, um, I think, in a very significant matter. And, you know, you mentioned some of, the, some of the specifics, but could you also go over a little bit more about um, 
how these violations have played out over time, like over, over the course of generations, particularly for Black and Latinx communities? Yeah, over time, well, first of all, we have to understand that these are generational traumas that we're dealing with. So um, this country um, has a long, his a long history, a long racial past that has only compounded into a worse situation, I think. And that's the same case for the students. You know, many of them are being taught by, um, taught inside of a system where their parents might not have gotten um, a thorough education and their parents might not have gotten a thorough education. So we're seeing a ripple effect, I think, in many regards. Um, inside of the specific issues going on as far as the Bradford lawsuit, what we are alleging is that number one, the state has not um, in the past adequately funded the education system, but the longer that the state takes to remedy the situation and right their wrongs, the more significant the economic cost is. Um, you know, this lawsuit started in the 90s and still here we are in 2021, we still have not seen an education system with an adequate educate with an adequately funded um, education scheme. And so it's only going to worsen and the cost only um, increases. And of course, you know, as we've seen many children age out of the system, from when the lawsuit was originally filed, um, those students go on and may have kids and then the situation only worsens. And then at the same time, of course, the building facilities that have not been, um, have, have not been made safe, have not been made um, habitable, they're, they're only deteriorating further. So the economic costs will only increase um, until there's something drastic that happens and we're hoping that the state will be forced to this, this time to do something to reverse the situation. Um, I'd like to add to that. Um, just, just the community voices that we hear when we go out and we speak to parents and students at meetings. And we hear a lot about the lack of arts education. Uh, not many students have access to learning a musical instrument, playing in a school band, um, or acting in a play or being part of a dance troupe. Um, these are standards that are in Maryland uh, regulations in Comar um, to have these fine art programs, but they just, many of them just don't exist. Um, there's a lack of access to advanced courses and other fields of study, such as science and science and technology skills, such as coding and 3D printing are growing industries and students should have those programs in their schools. Um, we hear about class sizes being way too large and students aren't getting the attention they need to succeed. Um, Many students need um, perhaps mental health um, services and to work through um, you know, issues related to whatever's happening perhaps um, at home or in their communities. Um, school buildings in Baltimore and other low wealth districts are literally falling apart, like Tierney said. Um, most of the schools in Baltimore were built in the 50s and 60s and have received funding well below what is required to keep them properly maintained, safe and healthy. Um, oftentimes, um, you have old and outdated heating systems breaking down in the winter, requiring students to wear their winter coats in school. And in the summer, many still don't have um, air conditioning. Uh, some schools can't power modern computer labs because of their aging electrical systems. Um, things like that. Um, and it's not just about funding. We've heard from many students and parents and leaders in Baltimore and around the state 
um, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and other students of color have been harmed from the education system being rooted in white supremacy. Um, schools have not centered the lived experiences, the histories and cultures of black and brown students, at least not in a way that's comprehensive and accurate and uplifting. If it is a goal of the state and school districts to ensure that students maximize their potential, it is important to ensure that the curriculum and interactions between school staff and students serve to build up black and brown students so that they develop strong identities and see their own value. Absolutely. Um, and actually, I wanted to touch on, Frank, talk a bit about um, the organizing that has been going on in Maryland across you know, many years to really come up with some really great victories, right? It hasn't been all doom and gloom. There has been a lot of work put in by parents and students um, and, and teachers as well to get us to where we are today. If you could highlight some of those for us. So many were Many people around the state, especially in Baltimore City, were holding on to that promise of, of adequate funding. And in 2008, as we mentioned, the state um, broke that promise and cut the Thornton formula that was supposed to provide adequate funding for schools. Um, this happened during the time that the whole country was going through a recession. So many states were looking for places to cut. And of course, education being a large spending item was. Um, was a focus for legislatures and governors to cut. And that's what happened in, in Baltimore, I mean, in, in Maryland, um, that affected um, Baltimore significantly and some other low wealth districts. Um, we responded because um, we were hearing from students and parents and communities at the ground level that they were losing staff, right, year after year. Um, so we worked in coalition with community, with other um, uh, community-based providers in schools um, and just other community members and institutions that had an interest and, and wanted to see, see schools adequately funded. And we went to Annapolis, literally bringing thousands of people to try to make up for the gap that was left by the cut to the education funding formula. So I'd say over the past 10 years, um, we have successfully fought for um, filling some of that gap to the tune of probably well over uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars over the past um, decade. Um, but that still falls significantly short of what should have been provided over that time. But I would say that, you know, the, the community did turn out, um, you know, and, and, and they exercised their rights and made their voices heard about what was going on in their schools, the staff that they were losing, the resources that they were losing and the impact that that was having on their kids. So um, let's see, it was 2010 when the ACLU produced a report on school facilities in Baltimore called Buildings for Academic Excellence. And the report exposed the systemic uh, funding flaws in terms of how the state um, disseminated um, capital dollars for school construction and improvements to school facilities. Um, and really it was, of course, the low wealth districts that didn't have the local wealth to ensure that enough capital dollars can be provided to keep up with capital needs of the, of the school infrastructure. So we, in the report, we exposed the flawed system of funding. And we also highlighted what um, other districts and states have done to put a significant 
um, effort into rebuilding um, deteriorating and old infrastructure uh, for their schools. We were successful after um, launching um, launching a campaign to win $1 billion in funding to start the rebuilding of Baltimore school facilities. Um, we put forward a bill in 2012 um, led by or sponsored by uh, Delegate Keith Haynes. Um, the city delegation was very instrumental in, in helping us push this bill. And it, it didn't pass in 2012, um, but in, we went back in 2013. Um, we literally brought thousands of people to Annapolis and we were able to win uh, that program called the Baltimore City School Construction and Revitalization Act of 2013. The program is now has been up and running for about, I think, eight years. And uh, one billion has been secured for rebuilding school buildings in, in Baltimore City. Uh, I think 16 of 28 planned uh, full renovations or newly constructed buildings have been completed um, to date. And there's about another 12 or so buildings that are still in the pipeline, either in the design phase or being constructed now. Still a lot a lot more to do to actually have adequately funded schools. Um, but it, it is worth lifting up, you know, the efforts of the community to make sure that, um, you know, that, that they were vocal on this issue and um, we're successful in filling some of those gaps. So thank you so much for that information, Frank. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great, amazing to see um, the state of where we, we are um, in, this, um, in, this, in this state of Maryland, but also all the things that people have done to organize and to actually you know, create some real victories. But it's not just you know, the school buildings, um, the quality of education that goes into a learning environment, but it's also how people are disciplined when um, issues arise. So Justin, if you could talk a little bit about how students in Maryland are disciplined um, and they particularly also the amount of police um, that are in our schools and talk a little bit about how school police and the punitive approach from um, to discipline has been disproportionately impacting black students in Baltimore and, in Baltimore and also in Maryland. Thanks for the question, Amber. What we see in Maryland is a over-reliance on punitive discipline for Black students and students with disabilities. And we see an over-reliance of um, arrests for Black students, particularly in schools when they are doing kid-like things within the school building. So for instance, I'll give you a little bit of data about the arrest um, in Maryland. So Black students in Maryland actually received 56% of school-based arrests statewide, but only represent a third of the entire student population. So we can see the disparities are, are jarring throughout the state, um, regardless of county, regardless of the full racial makeup that students are being over-policed, they are being taken out of the classrooms and they're being arrested. And they're not only being arrested through the school buildings, but 
in their communities, if there's things that are going on, those police officers are able to report back to the school what's happening with those students. So then they're targeted even more when they're in the classroom. So what we have is a situation where many students do not feel safe with the presence of officers. Think about who these schools serve. These schools serve students. If students say, no, you need to rethink why it is that you think put, putting guns in schools is okay, when a collective body of students who the schools are created for is saying no. Unfortunately, we had a school shooting in 2018 in Maryland that caused legislators to pass the Safe to Learn Act. And in the Safe to Learn Act of 2018, what you see is every school must have adequate law enforcement coverage. So every school district, every school in the state must have a plan, whether it's a school officer on site or if it's um, a memorandum of understanding with the local police force uh, to patrol and protect that school. So we see a lot of these um, issues really grounded and not changing because it, what is codified into law of the presence of police officers in schools. And if we look at the studies and we look at the research behind it, school police didn't actually decrease any category of offenses of students or really bring down any type of crimes or any type of uh, kid-like behavior, school fights or anything like that. They really just make kids feel unsafe because they have to go into school and see police. So about 70% of arrests that are happening in schools are actually based on minor fights, minor offenses that should be uh, just a talk to with, with a child and their parents, nothing to the point where they have a record. So it is a issue and it's an issue that a lot of folks across the state are mobilizing to address. It's, it's so important because uh, we also have seen that this is a, the schools, um, the, the police that are in schools has a direct in uh, relation to the rest of the, unfortunately, the rest of the criminal justice system, right? Um, or the legal justice system. You know, you're seeing, you know, it really often be like a pipeline. Could you talk a little bit about some of the work, Justin, that we're doing to, or that um, people have been doing to disrupt some of that pipeline? Yeah, a few years ago, at least with ACLU, we worked with different activists to and advocates to pass a law that would stem suspensions for pre-K through second grade. So pre-K through second grade students are, are not supposed to um, be able to be suspended through the law. Uh, unfortunately, we still see suspensions happen at that early grade level. So we are continue to work to collect data on suspensions, collect data on arrest um, to ensure that as we implement these laws, that we also have the data to show where it's not working so we can advocate to uh, hold school officials and other government officials accountable. And then there are a lot of local movements with student activists and student advocates for removing school police from schools. Uh, this is an issue that we worked on at the state level this past legislative session. Unfortunately, it did not get taken up with the rest of our uh, police reform package, but it is something that is happening at the local level um, that Folks are really pushing to remove these school police as uh, students return in the fall uh, so that they're able to feel safe when they come to school and not feel this police presence. And we're also just working to thinking of different ways to minimize 
the level of crimes and offenses that officers even have a chance to arrest kids on. Um, the list is so minute and minor for these offenses that if we can remove some of those offenses that it really would help students get the supports that they need not to put them in this uh, pipeline. And we're also fighting to ensure that funding for school police is removed at the state level at least and put into more uh, training for restorative approaches, more um, staff for mental health and counselors, uh, and just getting kids the support they need in schools and not placing them into this pipeline. Absolutely. Thank you for providing the insight to us, Justin. So Frank, another thing that, you know, comes up with education, I mean, we've talked about the school conditions, we talked about the funding, we talked about the police, but we haven't, we haven't yet talked about what they're actually learning. Um, can you talk a bit about the movement that's growing um, in Maryland and growing across the country for culturally inclusive learning environment and um, particularly also curriculum as well? And what does it even matter? What we're hearing from communities, um, a lot of parents who are active around the state um, with moving things in, and addressing things in their own uh, school districts locally in Baltimore City and all, um, you know, we're hearing that, you know, it's, it's really beyond funding, you know, funding is important, but we've heard from many students, parents and leaders um, that black, Latinx, indigenous and other students of color have been harmed from the education system since it's rooted in white supremacy. Um, schools in terms of their curriculum have not centered the lived experiences, the histories and the cultures of black and brown students, at least not in a comprehensive way um, that is accurate and uplifting. So really, if it's a goal that students maximize their potential and you know they come out of school um, ready to take on the world, right? Ready to take on college and careers. Um, and it's important to ensure that the curriculum and interactions between school staff and students serve to build up black and brown students so that they develop strong identities and see their own value. I can also add a little on the question of why it is important. You know, I can speak as a black woman who received an education that was completely absent of the um, of the history that created my current environment. It's very um, it's very it's very destabilizing. I think whenever you have no answers as far as how did you get to be in the position that you are in in that moment. And when you look at a city, let's use Baltimore, for example, that has a very long uh, racial history and um, currently is very um, apparent that it has systemic oppression operational. If you have children in that environment with no explanation of what put them there in the first place, and then also no explanation of how of the path to undo what has been done to them, then um, it's very immobilizing. And I think just psychologically, um, it depletes your belief that something else can exist. So if we're telling children that, you know, hey, there's a better world for you without any explanation of what happened to put them in a place where they are in. And also, as Frank alluded to, it's a matter of identity, you know, um, what is your identity? as a person who is inside of a country that has had an onslaught of assimilationist programming, whether it was Black children, Native American children, all, all children really, 
who have been brought into the education system have been taught to distance themselves from their ethnic their racial identities. And these are important things as far as self-confidence, as far as embracing yourself and um, not having that being embraced inside of a curriculum, feeling like that um, part of your life has to be left outside of the school. And you know, when you go in school, you're not taught anything that's um, reflective of your identity and who you are. It, it's, it's very much, you know, like I said, debilitating and it's very much psychologically, I think, harmful um, for children inside of the school system in Maryland. There is a, a new um, collective of advocates around the state um, calling themselves anti-racism for Maryland schools and what they're pushing um, they're pushing for alternative ways and alternative approaches to teaching and learning that centers the lived experiences and the cultures of uh, black and brown students. Uh, we were active um, this past session um, supporting three different bills. One of the bills would have um, set up a work group under the Maryland State Department of Education, would have um, developed content and standards for an African-American history curriculum. And also there were two bills um, that would have uh, set up a commission on developing content and standards for multicultural education and training for teachers. Um, all of the bills failed despite our efforts to um, and advocate for them. Um, you know, parents and students turned out for the hearings. Um, compelling testimonies in terms of, you know, how students are experiencing education now and, you know, how it impacts them that their, their lived experiences, their cultures are not represented adequately in the curriculum. So this was, you know, our first attempt at trying to um, change the narrative around um, education reform, because really, um, when people talk about education reform, it's mostly about funding. It's mostly about the level of resources and those kinds of programs for, you know, helping low-income students and, um, you know, providing interventions, additional resources, um, wraparound services, mental health and that. But there, what's lacking is, um, you know, the centering of people's lived experiences and culture. So, you know, this, this is an effort we are 100% behind. We're working with community and um, we expect to do some, some, we expect to be involved in this um, effort. Um, during the fall, we should, we might have a, a couple events and um, hopefully enter the legislative session with some um, good policy to advocate for. Over the summer of 2020, we had this humongous organizing um, and conversation building around uh, the murder of George Floyd and you know systemic racism that is in this country. And I think it's you know it's important for us to learn the the real history of how we got here. But I also think it's important for us to you know, to give people to make sure they're understanding the laws that are that have been passed and how how to dissect that, how to understand um, the legislation that's going on um, in Annapolis so that people can actually advocate for them and make their voices heard um, in the General Assembly. So Frank, could you talk to us a bit about 
the blueprint for Maryland's future that was just passed and what is really um, in that um, in that uh, humongous law. Please, please also give us a cliff notes version of that because I know it's a uh, multiple hundred page document. Uh, the blueprint for Maryland's future um, was just passed um, this session. Actually, there was a, a veto override of the previous years, a bill that passed um, and the governor vetoed it. Um, so now the bill has passed and it's based on the work of the Kerwin Commission, which deliberated over three years on the policies um, that is included in the law. Um, the framework they used was um, based on NCEE, I'm sorry, I'm gonna mess up that acronym. It was based on um, a framework that took from um, successful school districts and systems around the world, including Singapore and South Korea, um, Norway. Um, they looked at Massachusetts and New Jersey um, systems that are considered um, more successful than, than others in, in the country. And really there's um, several categories that they focused on. Um, one being um, pre-K and early learning. So the bill includes a pre-K for all for four-year-olds and for three-year-olds um, from low-income families. Um, it includes um, resources for early learning centers and support for, for parents, such as um, Judy centers. Um, it also has uh, new standards for college and career readiness, additional resources for um, struggling students. Um, they call them at-risk students. Um, these are students mostly of low income, students who attend schools and concentrated, with concentrated poverty. Um, and one of the strategies that we pushed on there was to fund community schools and wraparound services. So there's actually a new, in the funding formula, there's a new category for providing more dollars to schools with concentrated poverty. Um, there's also funding for um, a new teacher career ladder. It sets the, um, well, the, the, the policy includes um, elevating what they call elevating the teaching profession. Um, starting salary would be will be sixty thousand for teachers statewide, and with an oppor with opportunities to advance um, while keeping teachers in the classroom. So um, teachers can earn um, higher degrees um, and uh, gain additional responsibilities, become mentor teachers or vice principals or principals, and earn earn more. Um, and stay in the classroom and be, you know, a mentor to to other teachers. Uh, so generally, that's that's basically what's in the the Kerwin bill. Um, it's it's funded at about um, well, calls for about uh, four billion dollars to be invested over a ten year phase in period. Currently, about half of that has been secured uh, by the legislature. So for the full implementation of that law. Um, they would have to secure secure additional resources. Thank you for breaking down that really complicated law. Um, something a little more um, digestible for people, Frank. Um, I know we, we worked, um, we in a, of course, a coalition worked many years to get that law passed. Right. <laughs> yeah, we, we put a lot of time and effort into 
um, influencing the Kerwin Commission, uh, working with communities, uh, students and parents um, to turn out at you know, their public meetings and to testify on, uh, on the needs of their schools and their, and their children. Um, and I would say that you know, we're generally excited about you know, a, new, a new funding law and, and new programs in the blueprint bill. Um, but we do have some significant concerns. One being that there, there's reason to believe that the funding formula associated with implementing the blueprint programs is not adequate, that they did not properly cost out all of the programs that's called for in the blueprint, and that um, you know, the funding is gonna fall short of you know, providing the full scope of programs that's called for in the, in the law. Um, and the second was that really this is a resource bill, a funding bill, which obviously is very important because of the, uh, the history and decades of underfunding and just the, you know, the compounding impact that that has had on um, students and families. So, um, you know, the other things that Tierney and I were talking about related to uh, cultural inclusion, um, that was completely left out despite um, certain groups that were advocating for it. Yeah, and actually, um, Tierney and Frank, could you talk a little bit about how the Blueprint Bill is connected to the Bradford lawsuit? The Bradford lawsuit was um, refiled, or we filed a new complaint under the Bradford lawsuit on behalf of a new class of plaintiffs back in March 2019. Um, this was after the legislature um, failed to pass uh, the Kerwin recommendations into law. Um, they delayed the effort for at least two years in a row. Um, so, you know, all this time in delaying, um, you know, the, the, the funding deficits were compounding and we felt that it was necessary to put legal, legal pressure on the state uh, to follow through on you know, the effort to overhaul the, the education funding formula so that it meets constitutional standards. Um, originally, you know, the, the, the state was to review and make revisions to the state education funding formula starting in 2012. That's what the original Bridge to Excellence law called for. That was based on the Thornton Commission, which is rooted in you know, the Bradford case, which we first filed in the 90s. So this is a long-term a long -term, um, process. And it's um, you know, 10 years after that law, first law was passed, um, there was supposed to be the review and revisions of the funding formula, and it didn't happen. Uh, the state punted and said, well, you know, the, the federal government is requiring um, states to adopt common core standards. And so that work was complicated and happening at the time. And they said, well, it makes more sense to do the adequacy study after all of that. We pushed back and said they wanted to do it four years later. And we pushed back and the compromise, what, they, uh, what was agreed upon was that they would start the um, review and revisions in 2014. So at that time, the state hired um, APA, Augen, Blake, Pilot and Associates. They are um, a national private uh, consulting firm that does education finance work with um, governments. And they produced the report. 
um, that pretty much calls for similar amounts that the blueprint and the Kerwin um, um, commission recommendations came out with. Um, I think it was 358 million, this is back in 2014 or 2015, that the APA study um, reported. Um, and then the blue, when, when the Kerwin Commission came together, they adopted uh, a broader scope of work and they were looking not just to um, review and revise the education funding formula, but also education policies. And um, you know, we discussed what is included in the blueprint um, in terms of blueprint programs. Um, that was really what they were deliberating on um, for a few years. So, you know, right now it's still unclear as to whether or not the blueprint uh, funding formula and the policies will actually meet constitutional standard. So uh, we're currently litigating um, right now. And hopefully, you know, we can, this, the, the, the issue will be resolved in court. Um, and any needed changes to the funding formula can be made. And, you know, we can, we can make progress here. What we don't want is, you know, the, the same thing that happened that happened in the past where the Thornton Commission came up with recommendations. Most of the recommendations were enacted and then the state um, failed to follow through on their promise. Absolutely. And um, Tierney, what can people do, um, particularly as the, you know, litigation goes onward, um, particularly those here um, living in the city of Baltimore, uh, to support the Bradford lawsuit? I think the number one thing you can do is be aware, be aware of what's going on in the state of Maryland, be aware of the conditions that Baltimore City students are being forced into in order to get an education. Be aware of where your local politician um, stands as far as funding, whether it's the blueprint, blueprint bill, but also the governor's office. Um, what are their positions? The ACLU, we have a number of letters we've written to the governor's office explaining why this lawsuit is so important to the students in Maryland. And you should know what, where, where your governor stands on these positions that we've outlined. And from there, I would say being engaged, um, sowing your support by putting pressure on the political structure to ensure that Maryland does have an equitable education system. That's the number one thing that um, will go far, far for us because at this particular point, you know, if, if the information is not out there and if people cannot access it um, as far as understanding what's happening, then that really does leave students who are, um, inside of populations that are considered disadvantaged, that leaves them to try to fight against a very strong political system for equality by themselves. So standing in solidarity means educating yourself. It means holding your politicians accountable and um, being sure that the state that you live in is reflective of the one that you have, um, that, that we aspire to achieve. And it's important, this is the really, the, this is the very beginning of the implementation of the blueprint programs. So it's important for um, students and parents, communities to be aware of what is going on with the program, how it's being implemented. Right now, um, the governor, the Senate president and the house speaker have appointed two members each to what is called the nominations committee. And this committee is responsible for identifying and vetting 
and producing recommendations as to who is going to be on the nine member board of the accountability and implementation implementation board of the blueprint uh, for Maryland's future. So this is an important structure that is put in place and it has more authority and final authority on the implementation on the blueprint programs, um, even over the Maryland State Department of Education. Um, and they have the ability to withhold funds. So, you know, we're working with our partners now, um, right now with, uh, with the Maryland, um, the Maryland Alliance um, on Race Equity in Education is um, sending a letter to the nominations committee um, to ensure that they are including candidates that meet a certain set of criteria that we put forward that is beyond what is set in law. So we want to see board members have expertise in race equitable approaches to education, understanding the disparities in uh, achievement, in suspensions, um, in delivery of services um, that exist between um, districts with majority black and brown populations versus other districts um, that are wealthier and have um, lower numbers of black and brown students. Um, they should also be aware that not every district is starting in the same place. It's not an, it's not a level playing field. So they have to be aware of these things so that they're not unfairly taking punitive measures and withholding funding to the districts that need it most that might not be in a position to implement the programs um, based on whatever they might believe is attainable. Now, thank you for that, um, that context, Frank, and thank you, Terry, for um, giving some clear action items that people can take advantage of to hold their politicians accountable, make their voice heard. Um, so I have some general questions that I wanted to ask all of y'all. Um, you know, what are, when we think about like the concerns when it comes to rights to education in Maryland, um, particularly in the future, what are some things that we um, are concerned about, we're looking into, we're paying attention to um, over the next five years? I would say one of the concerns that we don't touch on as much, uh, but we are aware of is the move for uh, access to internet and broadband services for certain areas. We saw the lack of uh, students able to come to school during the COVID when everything became virtual and just being able to get students the technology and the support they need to flourish in school. So we talk about the curriculum, we talk about the discipline when they're in school, but we also need to talk about like having the access to the technology and being at the forefront of those resources so that they can thrive and, and really make, make a difference uh, within their education. Well, I think it's important that, you know, I think we're in a, in, in a critical moment right now in our country and locally here in Baltimore and, and statewide. Um, we just, uh, the, the state just passed the, the blueprint program. And it's just, it's important that that program be implemented well and that communities, uh, parents and students are involved in monitoring the changes and you know, seeing the outcomes that have been 
you know, uh, touted by the commission um, and by the state legislature, you know, regarding you know, the blueprint program and, and what it's supposed to produce. Um, and we can't let this program, you know, go on for 10 years and, and not see progress. I think it's really important now for um, the ACLU um, to monitor what's going on. We want to hear directly from parents and students and community about how the programs are being implemented in their schools and you know what concerns people have. Um, and we have to intervene. We have to disrupt. You know, we, we have to make sure that community voices are heard um, because we don't want to see again, you know, the same outcome as what you know we saw before with with Thornton and the implementation of Thornton. Now's the time to get it right. Um, now is the time to ensure that the state follows through on its promise. And if there are shortcomings in terms of the blueprint program, we need to make sure that the state makes changes, right? We can't afford losing another generation of children to a substandard and harmful education policies and inadequate funding. I would also say over the next five years, we have to keep in mind that this is an ongoing struggle for an equitable education. And it's not even a matter of just this lawsuit. We have to always be vigilant and always follow up with what's happening, um, particularly in Annapolis, because we should know, obviously, that you know governors consistently every year, they have to pass a budget. And what is in that budget? Is it going to um, do right by us this year, but two years from now, and you know we think everything's fine, um, something changed course. So I think it's not just um, a matter of just the lawsuit. It's a matter of a continual fight, you know, that is not going to be easily resolved until we see um, a consistent um, organizational effort on the ground to where uh, we have to make sure that the politicians representing us understand that there are ramifications, um, political ramifications for not doing what they are elected to do and for not pr providing um, for all children an education that will uh, help them to succeed in life. And so we have to just stay vigilant, I think, over time, um, five years from now, 10 years from now, and make sure that we have the organizational capacity to continue to push and ensure that those who we elect are being accountable to the people. Absolutely. And when it comes to advice for Marylanders who are looking to you know, build power and build um, power structures to really help support education in their communities, how, um, what advice would you give to Marylanders looking to do that? I'm personally a fan of everyone um, finding a means to be inside of an organization. So whether it's your, um, your parent teacher association or whether it's an independent nonprofit organization, um, having a means to engage with other people who are like-minded and have the same aspirations as you and to spread information and to strategize about uh, what is needed. And so I think that's very important, um, especially for um, people who, again, who have been historically disenfranchised by this system. We have to understand that when, the way that you undo structural racism 
is not by fighting as individuals. You have to fight collectively. You have to do it in an organized manner. So that would be my number one advice on that. Uh, we encourage uh, community members to reach out to us. And if you want to get involved, um, we're connected with a number of coalitions that work on education. And I would say that, you know, over the years, um, you know, the, the education narrative has been controlled by certain organizations and certain legislators. Um, and I would say that the narrative um, doesn't include many of the things that we talked about today, um, especially regarding the uh, uh, culturally inclusive schools and, you know, curriculum, the identity building and, and things of that nature. So I think it's important for, uh, we would love to hear from you. We are committed to um, helping to build up groups that are um, interested and have been pushing on these um, issues um, and, and getting folks connected with them, right? And you know, we will do everything in our power to ensure that these groups have a voice at the state level and locally um, to, to, to produce change. And I will just add to the students out there, we've seen a lot of organizing from the students. We've seen a lot of beautiful movements of them really taking control of their education and really pushing the envelope and being an active presence and an active voice, not only at the, their local school board meetings, but actually down in Annapolis in the state capitol for legislative hearings and talking to legislators. So to the students, keep uh, fighting and doing what you do. Nobody knows what's best but you, because you are in these classrooms and you are very much needed. And we want to continue to support that. Absolutely. Yeah, the students are, you know, that's what we are all fighting for um, and advocating for to make sure that they have a better education system than I think the majority of us on this call had um, when it came to public schools. So thank you, Tierney, Justin, and Frank, so much for being on Thinking Freely today and having this really rich discussion about education in Maryland. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Amber. Thanks, Amber. for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. This show was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time. <laughs>